This is WMPG. I'm Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about courage. The courage to talk about the subjects that are the hardest to bring up, but that we think about the most. This month's series is on the untold stories of dementia, how we live with it in our loved ones, and also how we live with the fear of getting it ourselves. This month, for the first time, we're inviting you to contact us if you have a similar story that you would like to share. We're calling this new section of the show Echoing Stories, and we'll be playing them toward the end of this series. So if you have an untold story about dementia, please email me at Dr. Anne, that's D-R-A-N-N-E, at safespaceradio.com. Today I'm going to be speaking with Nancy Soul about her experience as the primary caregiver for her grandmother with dementia. Like many with dementia, Nancy's grandmother became disinhibited, meaning that she no longer held back from saying or doing things that occurred to her to do. And in this story, she begins to tell family secrets that no one had ever spoken of before. Nancy Soul is a psychotherapist in Boston. She's the mother of two grown children. And Nancy is a teaching associate at Harvard Medical School and also a trainer for internal family systems therapy. Welcome to Safe Space, Nancy. Thank you, Anne. It's nice to be here. I'd like to start by setting the stage a little and just have you tell me a little bit about your family and about your grandmother before she became ill. What was she like? Well, she was. I always thought of her as a very proper lady. She always had her hair neatly combed. She cared a lot about how she looked. I didn't feel like I really knew her. She was a little bit stiff, and I was never... 100% comfortable with her because of, I don't I guess because she was so proper. Mm-hmm. And she was the grandmother on my father's side of the family. And I wasn't very connected to that side of the family. My father and my mother were divorced when I was young. And so I didn't really have a connection through him. My connection to that side of the family and to her came mostly through her efforts of keeping touch. So she always sent cards, and she would send a birthday present if she wasn't going to see us around our birthday, which she usually didn't. And so my father's family was um, from the South, and there was kind of a different culture that my father brought to me as a child. Like He taught me to say ma'am and sir to him and to my mother. And that was so strange for me in comparison to my mother's family. And I always felt just, um, I don't know, kind of a lack of intimacy, I would say, in that family. It felt like people cared about each other, but there was always some uncomfortable undercurrent. Of course, when I was little, I couldn't put that into words, but I felt it, and I remember feeling it. So I, I felt like there was sort of this, family out there, but somehow I was a part of it, but not a part of it. And when my father left, of course, that exacerbated that. And I always felt a little, um, a little bit like a stepchild in that family. And just to clarify, when you say your father left, it sounds like you mean he really left, left, like he wasn't bringing you to see his mom. He actually was completely out of the picture? Yes, that's right. That's what was unusual. I mean, usually children are feeling their connection coming through their parent. 
And my father, when he left, he really left. So he had some mental health issues. It became clear to me when I saw my father years and years later that he was bipolar and that much of the time he was in a manic episode. So when he left when I was little, um, and I was I was either four or five, he just left. He didn't say goodbye. He, he just disappeared. I see. So before we get to your grandmother's dementia, what you're saying is that your father, who was really quite absent for most of your growing up, that nonetheless you had this relationship with his side of the family, but there was always this kind of uneasiness and you didn't quite know what it was about. Yes, that's right. Okay. And so then many years later, your grandmother begins to get dementia. And how did it come to be that you, who always felt a little bit like the stepchild, um, and you had an aunt and two cousins who may have seen more of her, how was it that you were the one who became her caregiver? Yeah, this was kind of a wild turn of events in my mind um, at the time and even now as I think about it. Um, my grandmother had a younger sister, my great-aunt Doris, and um, my grandmother moved to Florida when I was a young mother, and I had two children. And um, my Aunt Doris had contacted me to tell me that she had made me the power of attorney for my grandmother because she saw that my grandmother was losing her memory and saw other signs of dementia. And so my Aunt Doris decided that I would be the best one to be made power of attorney because I had gone down um, with my children at various times to go visit my grandmother. So because you, because you had been helpful in the past. Because I'd been helpful and because I was a therapist and because I was a clinical social worker and because I treated my grandmother respectfully and kindly and I did for her what just felt like the right thing to do for someone that was in need. And meanwhile, your aunt and your two first cousins did not do that? Yeah, it was clear to me, even as a child, that there was a certain hostility that my aunt had for my grandmother and for my father, and sometimes for me and my sister, that I didn't understand, you know, but she would get um, angry and she would say hurtful things. I remember her using the phrase, our people, like speaking about um, that side of the family. Um, to my sister and I, as if it, we weren't part of that group. <laughs> mm. And so, but there was a tension between her and um, my grandmother, and certainly there was um, something that I didn't understand between her and my father. Okay, so here you are. You get appointed without being asked first the the power of attorney. So you're informed after the fact. Yeah. Uh, for your grandmother, who of course now has a progressive illness and will be getting more and more dependent. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to be with your grandmother as she became ill, and in particular, of how you saw this disinhibition beginning to manifest. Well. How she became ill was um, gradually over time she started to lose her memory and her her long-term memory was better than her short-term memory. And so she could capture the past and she could describe it, but her short-term memory was really shot. She would repeat 
things over and over, thinking that she hadn't just said it five times before. But she could tell you a story about the past and about the dress she wore to the prom and, you know, all kinds of fun details that I just loved hearing about. So I kept all the family photos and then sat down with my grandmother and went through every photo and had her go through the story, which was enormously healing to me. Mm. It's like you became her heir, having felt cast out and like a stepchild, suddenly you were the heir. Yeah, exactly. It was exactly like that. And, you know, even now as I'm recounting it to you, um, I can just remember um, my pleasure in really listening to her and really learning about the family and feeling so much a part of the family and, yeah, feeling like an heir. Mm. So I understand then as she became more ill that she also began to tell things that perhaps she hadn't told before and that um, that, that was perhaps a little more complicated to hear. And I, I wondered if you could tell me about that and, and what that was like for you. Yeah, there were there were a lot of things that started to come out, and, and she started to even use language that I had never heard her use before. And as she got um, more and more um, forgetful and more disinhibited, um, she talked about the relationships in the family with more detail, revealing things that she never had spoken to me about before and it seemed like she would kind of enter this private world of her own inside and a world of the past and it seemed like she would almost forget what year it was or where she was and was really having like pulling into herself maybe it to me it almost seemed like she was leaving, like it was the beginning of her kind of getting ready to die and and really leaving um, the present moment. But she would get stuck on a a theme, and she would repeat a sentence over and over again. Um, One time I went, and she was repeating something about some conflict that had happened between her parents that she saw her mother um, really pained about. And then another time I went, and she kept repeating the phrase, and Buddy made his own sister pregnant, and Buddy made his own sister pregnant. And that was so shocking to me, because Buddy was my father. And she just kept repeating it, and she was crying. And then she would repeat it again and be crying again. And I was really shocked stunned and scared and um, didn't know what to say or what to do and just was crying with her because it was so overwhelming and tried to ask her more about it, but she clearly was just in this inner world of her own. And um, Did part of you, Nancy, did part of you wonder... um, if it was even true, if this was something she was sort of making up? or You know, as I listened to that, I actually didn't doubt that it was true because, first of all, it just didn't sound like something my grandmother in a million years would just conjure up. 
Yeah. Because she was so proper and because family was so important to her. And as I heard it, as stunned as I was, it really, it made sense to me on some level because there had been such a strange, hostile undercurrent in this family and I didn't know why. And and it took me, I was going to say it took me a long time to process it, but actually I'm still processing it. How long ago was this? This was a long time ago. Let me think about this. Um, I think it was like in 1995. Yeah, so about 18 years ago, you find out that actually your father had incested his own sister, something yeah. you had never known. And all you had felt was this kind of cold hostility, which had never been understood. And, all, and now all of a sudden you have this, like, everything starts to make sense. Yeah, everything did start to make sense. I understood um, my my aunt's complicated relationship with my grandmother. I understood my aunt's like hatred of my father and her mixed feelings about his children. Right. So let me come back for a second because I want to. I want to have you take me through that understanding. Okay. So it helped you make sense about her complicated feelings to her own mother. In fact, why she wasn't caregiving for her own mother. But why? Why would it explain? So this the fault was with her brother. What did you get about why your aunt was so upset with her own mother about this? Well, her mother, my grandmother had always spoken about my father in positive terms to me and talked about how handsome he was and how charming he was. And if, if this is true, then she, my grandmother had not protected her daughter. I see. That my father had abused his younger sister and... She hadn't been protected from him. What was the age difference, Nancy? You know, I'm I'm actually not totally clear, but I think it's I think it was three years, uh-huh. maybe four years. So when you say that, you know, that her own mother hadn't maybe protected her from her older brother, but the other thought that occurred to me is, do you know what happened to that pregnancy and what role the grandmother had in that decision? Right. I don't know. I don't know. And. It's something that actually to this day I wonder about and um, and I still think a lot about contacting my aunt and, and talking to her, but I think she would not want to talk to me. I don't think she's ever talked to people about it. My grandmother certainly hadn't. We've done shows um, in the past in Safe Space with people who who became pregnant and you know in 15 16 were forced to give the child up for adoption and then nobody ever spoke to them about it for 30 years it was completely silenced is that what you wonder if if that happened to your aunt I do I wonder if she had an illegal abortion or if she was sent away to have a child like what what happened how did they keep this secret so let's talk more about the impact on you, because this is information about your own father. 
That must have been just very painful to hear, to imagine him in that role. And I'm curious, what was the sort of series of different feelings that, that hit you about about what this even meant for your life? Yeah, you know, initially, and the first feeling was just shock and, and kind of a frightened feeling. And that kind of segued into shame for me. Even though I had nothing to do with it, I wasn't even born yet, I felt tremendous shame. And the only person that I felt comfortable talking to about it was my sister. And I called her in short order and told her, and I, and I think she was equally as shocked and shaken, and I think she also immediately went into shame. And like so many things that we had talked about when we were little kids with that family, we had to figure out, you know, as adults, like, what do we do with this piece of information? Like, what do you do with a piece of information like that about your father, your own father, and his younger sister? Right, it's such a painful piece of information, but also in some ways, this may I hope this doesn't sound callous, but in a strange way for you to know was actually a gift because it sort it, it helped you make sense of things in your own life. Exactly. It did. And it explained so much about the disconnections in the family and it explained so much about um my aunt and, and her I don't her mixed feelings about um, her mo- her own mother and about um, her nieces, my sister and I. Yes, because in a way, you know, you as his children, she had presumably lost a child that was his child. So in this strange way, you know, you were quite closely related to the child that she lost by whatever means it was. Yeah, that was a hard one for me to wrap my head around, just thinking about how I would be related to this child. I would be both sibling and cousin. Yes, and to think that it's possible that that person exists. Yeah, I, I don't know. And I don't even know how I would begin to to find out more information. You know, my, my, my aunt is still alive, and um, but I have no contact with her. My, as my grandmother's dementia went on and on, there was no contact with her daughter who never called her or never called me. And when my grandmother eventually died and I contacted my aunt and her daughters, um, there was no interest at all in coming to a memorial for my grandmother or participating or, or any of that. And, and, and I really got that she wanted to be left alone, that she didn't want me contacting her or pressuring her and um, I mean, that's a piece that I'm still processing. Yeah. You know, how much do I, you know, do I, is it, do I respectfully remain silent and um, leave her alone with whatever she's carrying from that experience? Or do I contact her and let her know that I know? And what would that be like for her? And, yeah, so it, it's very hard for me to decide. I mean, frankly, I think if I contacted her about anything, much less that, if I contacted her about anything, I don't think she would answer, and I don't think she'd return my phone call, which is pretty sad. It is. It's so poignant because what I sense in your tone is that 
you have some window now into her suffering and that she, she clearly suffered, you know, in some ways in, in a very acute way in terms of the incest itself, but also long term in terms of the pregnancy and, and whatever came of it. And it's sad in a way because you, you know, you're a trained therapist. You would ha- bring so much compassion to that conversation. Like, yeah, I, I I would, and I feel a huge amount of compassion for her and um, and forgiveness for how she treated me and how she treated my grandmother and and just her anger and hostility. I I understand it more now, and um, and I would if I could talk to her about it, but. Um, that I I really don't think that's ever going to happen. I don't think she would ever talk to me about it. I wish she would, but I don't think she will. I can imagine, you know, Nancy, you and your sister both felt so much shame immediately, even though it was something that you weren't directly involved with in any way. And so I can imagine that for your aunt to speak about it could just be so, so difficult and bring up so much shame. And I, I want to switch back to actually the shame that you felt because mm-hmm. here you are, you know, from feeling so much shock and, and not wanting to tell anyone to, to talking to me on the radio. And I'm curious to ask you, what do you feel now about talking about it yourself? What is that like for you? And, and how do you decide when, when you do want to talk about it? Well... As I said, I'm still processing it, but where I am today with it is that the the feeling that comes up the most for me is sadness when I think about that story and um, and I think about this family and how much went unresolved and undiscussed and unhealed in the family. You know, my father um, had a major mental illness that went untreated, and I think he probably had that illness when he was an adolescent. Mm -hmm. Does part of you wonder, Nancy, if your father's mental illness had been treated early, whether the whole thing could have been prevented? Yeah, I I do wonder about that, but, you know, I also think about how bipolar was treated in those days. Right. And I don't know that they really would have, that he really could have gotten the help that he needed. Um, I think people thought that he was just um, a a handful and just um, a problem child, and, um, and, and he was. Right. But I don't know that that he could have been adequately helped in those days. So. Right. You know, I'm struck at, at um, in a way, how your mother did protect you. Yeah, I'm so glad that you said that, Anne, because that actually is a place that um, I have landed. You know, I really, when I was younger, I, I really grieved the loss of my father. It was just it actually just created a huge hole for my sister and I 
and we talked about it a lot as little girls and as adults. And in light of this information, I actually felt lucky that I had the childhood that I had even with my father's absence because I think my mother really did manage to protect us um, by sticking to her guns. She didn't know what was wrong with him. She didn't know what to call it. But when I would ask her, you know, why they weren't together, why she didn't get back together with him, she would always say that she didn't want to get divorced, but she felt she had to to protect us because his behavior was frightening and violent and erratic and that she did what she needed to do. And But I always felt, well, you know, maybe she didn't try hard enough when I was a little girl because I missed having a dad. Of course. But, yeah, and but after this information came to light, I felt grateful to her for being willing to do the hard thing and be, being willing to do the right thing and protect us. And I, I have told her that. And even just as I say that, I right now I feel a little bit um, of a welling up, just appreciating how she did that really well. She made a good decision there. But Nancy, you know, you have carried on your mother's legacy because even though it was the hard thing, you really stepped up and cared for your grandmother when really no one else was going to do it. And ultimately, even though things came out that were so shocking, it, it's it's such a story of healing, really, it seems to me, to, to have grieved with her, for you to be someone she could tell her stories to that she'd never shared with anyone. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I You know, I think at a time in her life when she was pretty defenseless, um, for that grief to come out and for us to just sit together while she remembered and just repeated and repeated her grief was a blessing for both of us, actually as shocking as it was for me. Um, I'm really glad that I was there for her. And I'm really glad that she was able to talk about it and, and share it with someone in the family so that the secret didn't carry on in the same way. Mm-hmm. I find myself thinking about the power of secrets, especially secrets that are held for decades and that have all these consequences that don't make any sense because you don't really know what happened, but you feel the fallout of this unspoken story. But I wondered if part of your motivation to tell this is fueled in some way by how silenced this was and kind of the, the need that we have to talk about things that have been kept in silence. I'm, I'm curious to ask you, what were your hopes in deciding to share this? What's your hope about what that will give to others? Well, you know, my hope is that this will help somebody. That's my hope. These secrets are so painful and they hold their power because they are secrets. There's something about being able to talk about it that lets in light and air and somehow, I think, promotes healing. I'm, I've experienced that for me, and I think, and not that I think people need to share their secrets on the radio like this, <laughs> but to share it with someone and to not hold it alone because when we hold it alone, it just perpetuates the shame, and we don't get to gain a perspective. We don't get to 
look at it from um, outside of it, it, it actually begins to feel like somehow it's part of us in some painful, awful way. So I'm really glad that I told my sister, and I'm glad that I talked to my close people about it, and I'm glad that you and I are talking about this because I'm hoping that it might free somebody else up who's got some kind of story like this that maybe needs um, some light and air. Nancy, thank you again. That's exactly my hope as well. This is WMPG. I've been talking to Nancy Soul about how dementia can sometimes result in the opening of family secrets from decades before and the ways in which telling those secrets can finally be healing. If you have a story about a loved one with dementia that you would like to tell in the hopes of helping others, please email us at dranne at safespaceradio.com. That's D-R-A-N-N-E, Dr. Ann at safespaceradio. You can also, if you didn't get a chance to hear this whole show and you'd like to, or if you'd like to email this link to a friend, please go to our website, which is safespaceradio.com. You can get the link, download it onto your phone. You can download it from iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, Maurice Lennon for the music, and Jim Russell for consulting with us. Coming up next is Speak Freely.